Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 Thanks. I like a wave. Everyone wave. Hello. Oh, I love the energy. That's so good. Welcome to Deepak Home Base. This is a space dedicated to healing, education, theater, and art. And tonight, activism. Um, We have all been shocked by this election season and hopefully shocked enough to encounter, no, to counter our fatigue and become charged with a new fervor for a fair America, right? Have we? Okay, great. Our culture has completely erupted with a demand for real democracy and real change, for a protected environment, for black lives to matter genuinely, for gun reform as we wrestle with bizarre tragedy after bizarre tragedy. And although this election has brought out the very worst of America, perhaps we are in an important molting stage, breaking out from outdated biases, shedding our skin to be born more closely in line with our ideals. Tonight we talk about transformative activism with our guests, transformational activism with our guests. (laughs) Ethan Nickturn, a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. He is the author of the claimed book, The Road Home. He founded and is now a board member of the Interdependence Project. Sharon Salzberg, meditation teacher and the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Bear, Massachusetts. <laughs> Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> Barry. Barry, Massachusetts. She is the author of many books, including Real Happiness and Real Happiness at Work. And we claim her as a resident teacher here at ABC Home. Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is the 65th Attorney General of New York State. Yes. Thank you. Eric has fought for justice for all workers, defending their right to a fair and decent wage for a full day's work. He worked to provide relief for families hit hard by the housing crisis, and he has locked up corrupt politicians who have ripped off taxpayers, prosecuted companies that have gouged victims of Hurricane Sandy, and took on the big banks that led us into recession. He is of the people, for the people, which is, of course, completely refreshing. As the Attorney General is quoted in Ethan's book, I hope people come to see their meditation and yoga practices as they, hold on, profound political act. And I hope people come to see their political work and social engagement as a profound spiritual practice. That's why we're all here tonight. To note, we, have, we are dedicated to this conversation here at ABC, and tomorrow night we'll serve as a part two to the conversation with Robert Thurman, Stephen Dynan, Rabbi David Ingber, and David Carey Jackson. You are all welcome to come here as our guests on a discussion on sacred America, building a sacred America. Okay, to begin, Sharon will start us with a practice. 
Well, thank you so much. And it is, of course, an enormous delight to be back here and to see all of you. So I thought we would just sit for a few minutes, really just a few, uh, in that spirit of gathering our attention, more fully arriving, remembering our deepest intention, creating a space for openness, for listening, for commenting, whatever. And it's so amazing to be sitting surrounded by um, this calligraphy by Thich Nhat Hanh. And anyone is like a lifetime's learning, like breathe, you are alive. So let's just breathe together for a few minutes. Thank you. Ethan? Okay. So thank you, Sharon. Two nights in a row with you. Feel very lucky. Uh, always feel super lucky to be with the Attorney General, who's I know has spent the whole day dealing with the American television media, which I think is a complete path of compassion within itself these days. Um, and so great to be with you all and back at uh, ABC Home, which is just a wonderful space and uh, actually hosted the uh, release of last year of the Road Home release party. So really feel a lot of gratitude towards uh, the people who work here and everybody for coming out for this conversation. Um, I'm going to sort of introduce uh, what we talk about in, in a Buddhist context, as we often use the word view, sort of a framework for engaging in or beginning our conversation, and then uh, turn it over to the Attorney General, um, who I met um, when he was a, a mere state senator from the Upper West Side, and I was a mere nothing, <laughs> also mostly from the Upper West Side. Um, in 2006, and I was uh, teaching meditation and, and Buddhism and uh, was very interested in sort of the application of ancient practices of working with the mind and heart to social, cultural, and also political applications um, in the West. And this is something that's um, very implicit in uh, my Buddhist tradition, the Shambhala tradition, and had the fortune to meet Eric, who was um, already really deep in his own contemplation and work uh, through all of the different things he had studied, um, uh, both in his spiritual life, his uh, practice life, uh, personal practice life, and also in his political and social justice life on his own view of how we could actually... Uh, 
transform ourselves and transform society simultaneously. So the, the, my take on, on this view is also uh, uh, more elaborated in the last section of the road home, but um, the simple way of looking at this is that we came to see that sort of the practice of awakening or the practice of transforming is really happening on three levels simultaneously. And these three are the personal level. And I'm sure most at this point, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how quickly this is changing. Um, uh, when uh, I was a kid, I was actually like cool in New York City because my parents were Buddhist and you would call my house and they might be meditating. Um, and now it's like, yeah, I meditate too. What, what does that mean, right? So what do you, you think you're special? So I think probably most people here have some form of personal practice. Um, and then the second level is sort of how we relate uh, in our interpersonal and organizational lives, uh, in our uh, relationships, how we use our relationships as a uh, form of awakening. Sharon and I really talked a lot about that level last night at the Shambhala Center. And then the third level, I think, is one that definitely in the, in the Buddhist teachings is um, it's implicitly there, but it's not really drawn out how one would practice on this level. And Eric is really, I think, a, a, a Roshi or Ajahn or Rinpoche of, of this level of, of practice, of um, working with um, the collective, the social, the political the, the shared consciousness level of our experience. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people in the world who are very compassionately practicing and thinking about at least one of these levels. Um, a lot of us, has anybody gone on a meditation retreat this year? I think that's a real investment in that first level of practice and maybe the second level as well in terms of how we engage with the people who share the retreat space. And uh, I always like to say that a lot of my friends right now are uh, mothers or fathers of young children, right, which is sort of a retreat in and of itself on that second level. And sometimes you don't have enough time to do uh, the first level of practice when you're taking care of another little sentient being. And a lot of people are really compassionately engaging in collective and transformational practices. Um, but the notion of the way uh, Eric really looks at things explicitly and um, the way through the teachings I've studied and, and working with these two and others have really come to look at things is actually it becomes truly transformational when each of us engages on all three of these levels as a practice. That's the real transformation is when we are able to say, yes, I'm working with my own mind and heart through my wellness or spiritual practices. I'm really making relationships part of my practice and I'm engaged in the world. I'm engaged in my community. I'm engaged in politics. I'm engaged in culture. That is as much a practice of awakening as any other. Um, so I think that's really the notion is that, um, and Eric keeps reminding me of this when I, I, um, I often will send Eric news of people in his world who are getting on the meditation um, train. 
And uh, actually, there have been several major articles published about Hillary, Hillary Clinton's meditation practice this year. Right? And Eric is very happy with those developments, but he always reminds me that the point is to do all of them simultaneously and to promote all of them simultaneously. And that's really what uh, sets, I think, his view of transformational activism and the work he's doing apart. So is that a good enough laying out of the view? Yeah, that's good. All right. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Thank done. you for having us here. Thank you for coming out and a sort of rainy night. Um, in fact, uh, yes, Ethan and I met 10 years ago. Uh, Ethan's father, who is uh, a meditation teacher as well, uh, told me about his son was trying to set up this interdependence project to do political work, the Dharma, and culture. And uh, that his father, in your father's view, that maybe you could use a little coaching about the political work. And so he suggested we meet. And I was in a very, just a perfect point in my life to have, engage in this conversation because um, I'd written, uh, I, I come from, I mean, I have a, a, a long history and interest in this. I belong to a very strong activist synagogue where we have political activism is a part of everything we breathe, but we also do mindfulness meditation retreats with our rabbis. So it's... Um, uh, and funny that Bob will be here tomorrow night. And 42 years ago, in Introductions to Asian Religion, my freshman year of college, Professor Robert Thurman was just trying to go straight and stop being a uh, Buddhist monk and become a college professor. And that confluence uh, uh, had all sorts of dramatic impacts on my life. So I've been thinking about a lot of these things. But when Ethan and I started talking in 2006, I was really experiencing, uh, I wouldn't say it was, it's an existential crisis, but an existential dilemma uh, based on uh, really my, my, uh, my concern really with, what was going on, not with the conservatives and the Republicans, what was going on with the Democrats and the liberals. I was really uh, a, somewhat traumatized by the fact that we lost two elections to George W. Bush for president. And I understand being beaten by Ronald Reagan, right? He was charming, he was articulate, he was an actor. This guy couldn't even string two sentences together. Right? And he was up against people who were clearly smarter than him. So I started to watch the ads and try and understand what was motivating people and there are all these theories about how people are motivated to vote against their self-interest by this or by that. And I, I came to um, uh, frame a view of politics. I wrote an article distinguishing between two aspects of political work. Uh, one is called transactional politics, and the other is transformational politics. Transactional politics is very simple. It's what's the best deal I can get today on a health care bill, given the power structures that exist, given where everyone's consciousness is. What's the best deal I can get on uh, an immigration reform bill? What is it that we can do in the next, you know, six weeks to elect our preferred candidate? Uh, you know, not a lot of time to transform people's fundamental sense of their own being. But the second part of the work, transformational work, is equally essential and was being badly neglected, in my view, by our side of the debate. Um, transformational work is the work you're doing to change the way people think about an issue and view an issue so that the deal you can get on a civil rights bill or an immigration reform bill or a health care bill in two years or five years or 20 years is better than the deal you can get today. What are you doing to change consciousness about an issue? And 
once you accept the idea that politics is about transforming consciousness, the conversation with the, uh, a meditation teacher becomes a much easier conversation to have. Um, but we don't usually think of it in those terms. So the history of the United States, in my view, is a history of a great idea where he started out with a very, very uh, great aspirations and high ideals, this notion of starting a nation on the basis that uh, all are created equal, clearly was not true if you looked at the facts on the ground back at the founding of the republic, right? I mean, first of all, the sentence was all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So women weren't even in it. Slavery was widespread. Jews and other non-Christians couldn't vote and suffered under all these disability laws. Uh, women couldn't own property in many places. Uh, so the history of the country, in my view, is a history of transformational political movements from the abolition movement to the women's suffrage movement, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, that have been all about changing consciousness with a view that something that is impossible today. When you started the abolition movement, there was no possibility of ending slavery. But people were willing to work to transform consciousness for decades towards an end that they often knew they would never live to see. Same thing with women's suffrage. And it's really remarkable. And in this, this time where a lot of people are um, feeling like we're going backwards, and there are periods of backsliding in, in American history, but the good news is that our trajectory as a nation has always been towards greater equality and greater justice and deepening our understanding of that as we've moved forward. We do not go backwards. And periods of backsliding happen, and... We've had an experience over the last 30 years where the most important political movement that has been built is the contemporary conservative movement, which has a tremendous infrastructure. I'm getting to experience it a lot in my life these days, um, given some of the uh, cases I'm involved with and investigations I'm involved with. But they built a magnificent infrastructure to change the way people think about their lives. The American people didn't used to think that cutting taxes always creates jobs or that government is always less efficient than the private sector. There, this, is, this is consciously transformed. And famously, there was a memo written in 1971 by Lewis Powell, who was then rewarded by being put on the U.S. Supreme Court, laying out this conservative strategy. This was not something that just happened. So um, some people are you know, feeling like we're moving backwards, but I assure you, backward movement in American history is always very, very temporary. So let me point out a couple of transformational uh, uh, notions. The New York Times was opposed to women's suffrage. In 1916, in Montana, Jeanette Rankin became the first woman elected to Congress. This is before the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. The New York Times op-ed page opined, if she is elected to Congress, she will improve the body aesthetically, for she is said to be tall with a wealth of red hair. And after she won the election, the Times printed the following quote. She's a, Ms. Rankin is a very feminine woman. She dances well and makes her own hats and sews and has won genuine fame among her friends with the wonderful lemon meringue pie that she makes when she hasn't enough other things to do to keep her busy. That is the New York Times. That was from 2015. 1916. <laughs> no, but when she died in 1973, they published an extraordinarily respectful and admiring obituary, noting that there were no consciousness-raising groups to liberate Jeanette Rankin in 1916, when as the United States moved forward towards war with the Central Powers, the small, trim woman from Missoula undertook her successful congressional campaign. Consciousness had been transformed, not because it just happened, 
but because people fought for it. Those women, the suffragettes were reviled. Uh, they were uh, denounced and defamed and uh, suffered every form of abuse, but they kept on going. The civil rights movement, again, just for those of you who've got the feeling we're not moving forward in this country, I would note that a 2015 study looked at um, 50 years of polling uh, during the course of the civil rights movement. In 1963, a Gallup poll found that 78% of white people would leave their neighborhood if black families started to move in. And with respect to Martin Luther King's Wash on Washington, 60% had an unfavorable view of the march, stating that they felt it would cause violence and would accomplish nothing. That was in 1963. Surveys conducted in 2014 found that 52% of Americans believe we will totally eliminate racial prejudice and discrimination in the long run, and that 78% think the Civil Rights Act of 64 was a very important historical event. And, but perhaps most tellingly, the, the polling showed that 84% of whites and 83% of blacks believe that the act had made life better for everyone in the United States. Only 2% believe that it made things worse. So the Civil Rights Movement was not a passive movement. It wasn't a violent movement. But it was, it was a very uh, aggressive approach to a very in-your-face approach, people sitting in, refusing uh, to get out of segregated sections of movie theaters or restaurants or uh, buses. And it did involve, um, and, it, and it had a tremendously uh, beautiful, self-conscious spiritual quality to it. This is a quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel, a great Jewish scholar who marched with King in, in Selma, who said, for many of us, the march from Selma to Montgomery was about protest and prayer. Legs are not lips, and walking is not kneeling, and yet our legs uttered songs. Even without words, our march was worship. I felt that my legs were praying. Right? So people like Jeanette Rankin and people like Abraham Joshua Heschel worked to transform consciousness, to change the way people saw themselves. So once you accept this fact, then we start, I started thinking about what is the sort of the core sense of self that has enabled the other side to so change political discourse in the United States that we uh, elected someone twice who's, needless to say, his policies resulted in the worst collapse of the economy since the Great Depression. We were in all these wars. We didn't really know why we were there or how we get out. Um, uh, the prison industrial complex continued to explode in our failed national experiment and mass incarceration continued long after it should have been redirected. And watching um, political ads and listening to speeches, it, it occurred to me, and this has emerged out of conversation that Ethan and I and a group of us started to have, that the core message was really about people's sense of themselves. And the three characteristics that defined this conservative sensibility were that human nature... We are, by our own very inner nature, inclined to be separate, selfish, and scared. If you look at the ads, it was all appealing to fear. A sense of separation always has some other to demonize. You know, this year we've seen the demonization of Mexicans and Muslims, but I can assure you, as someone who receives lots of anti-Semitic hate tweets from Donald Trump supporters, uh, once you open the door to one bigot, you open the door to them all. Um, and selfish. The human nature was everyone's... You know, everyone's out to get what they can for themselves, so you, you better be that way too. And the problem I had at that point in my existential dilemma was that I felt that too many people on our side actually really did buy this too. 
that when they were alone in their rooms at night, they would feel like, you know, we're trying to soften the blow, make things a little less bad for people who are uh, in need. But, you know, yeah, I guess human beings are kind of inclined to be self separate, selfish, and scared. The answer to that is not to substitute hating Muslims and Mexicans with hating Goldman Sachs, right? This is, it, it does not work that way. And I found that too many of single-issue activists and what passed for progressive politics or regular Democratic people in politics and my colleagues in the state legislature and elsewhere really were not offering a true alternative to this Hobbesian vision of human nature as inclined to a war of all against all. We are separate, selfish, and scared. There's nothing we can do about it. Liberals are well-intentioned, but it's really naive to think that you can embrace the other, that when you leave the room, everyone else isn't going to try and take what you have off the table. So we looked at this and considered what a true alternative would be and came up with another view of life and a view of our own being that we all experience every day. In addition to having experiences that, you know, I feel like sometimes like, yeah, I feel separate, selfish, and scared, we also have a feeling of ourselves as connected, compassionate, and courageous. This is the alternative frame of consciousness for human nature. And every day, I think, hopefully, unless you're having just a really bad day, you experience some of both. You make some connection with some other person. You feel courageous about something you've done. You feel um, uh, compassion. But we know from Sharon's work and Ethan's work and the work of a lot of other people that there are practices to develop your compassion muscles, to develop your courage muscles, to develop your connection muscles. And as Ethan laid out, we uh, identified three levels of practice. And the idea of transformational activism, as we framed it up, was that every day, each of us engages in inner work, whether we're thinking about it or not. We incline ourselves through our inner thought processes towards feeling more separate, selfish, and scared, or towards feeling more connected, compassionate, and courageous. I mean, Sharon brought meta-meditation to the United States, which is very explicitly about, you know, pumping up those compassion muscles. And it's, uh, you know, and she goes into labs and they, they hook her head up to wires to prove that, you know, she's actually changing her neural pathways. So it's all, it's all backed up by science. Um, but the, um, but the, uh, the fact is that at the second level that Ethan spoke about, you also are involved in transforming your consciousness every day whether you realize it or not. How do you treat the people around you? One of the really uh, uh, challenging problems in uh, doing progressive political work is that there are organizations dedicated to such wonderful ideals where their interpersonal stuff is terrible. The organizational structure is terrible. It's like this, people are not engaged in a way that promotes collaboration and uh, mutual respect and support. So that second level, how we deal with the people we interact with, is a level of practice also. You change your consciousness every day by the way you interact with other people. And then finally, at level three, uh, whether you like it or not, you are involved in politics. Whether you like it or not, you have a role to play. We are not, I don't, is anyone here a renunciate who lives in a cave? So we all are wearing clothes that were made by someone. We all are eating food that was prepared by someone. We all have the freedom in this country uh, while it's far from perfect, but we have the freedom to 
vote, to speak, to blog, to protest, to do all sorts of things. And uh, this is not really, shouldn't be a closely guarded secret, but most public officials are terrified of public activism because so few people do it, right? I mean, if, you know, if a thousand people show up in the office of a sitting state legislator, that person is on the phone to their legislative leader freaking out and saying, well, you need, you know, you need to do something here. This is, I'm going to lose my, you know, that's the Mel Brooks line. We're going to lose our phony baloney jobs, you know? It says, a, so a little bit of activism goes a very far way. And you can just look at examples that we've seen very recently in our own lives and understand the trajectory of the transformation of consciousness about the LGBT community is just astonishing for those of us who were involved in that movement more or less from its inception. And, um, you know, it was really just one of the most remarkable experiences of my life to have friends of mine who are on the board of marriage equality saying, we're happy to report that this is our last meeting. We're closing the organization. So the transformation of, and that was, went from, you know, when I was in college, anti-gay slurs were just sort of routine and consciousness changed. Um, if I had told you 10 years ago that this sort of ragtag group of protesters would beat the entire energy industry and we wouldn't have hydrofracking in New York State, you probably would have said I was crazy. I might have been. But they showed up. And it wasn't even that many people, but they showed up over and over and over again, and they changed people's consciousness about this. And people went from seeing it as this great, important, clean bridge fuel to a clean energy future to seeing something that, in fact, was very harmful to the environment. And in New York State, we'll never have hydrofracking, I believe. Um, that was done because of transformational activism. So Aaron Dottie Roy, speaking of injustice, once said, um, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you've seen it, keeping quiet, saying nothing becomes as political an act as speaking out. There's no innocence. Either way, you're accountable. So for those of you who see injustice, but don't see your role in doing something about injustice, I would urge you that it's very easy uh, through modern technology to find like-minded people who are working, and then this is where the notion of skillful means comes to play. You have to use the same approach to your level two and three practice that you do to your level one practice. Someone may say to you, I've got a great meditation practice and it involves playing pinball for four hours a day. Maybe that is a spectacular practice, but if you test it out and use skillful means and say, I'll either do breath work or I'll do pinball, I think most people probably would come back to breath work. Just not that I've actually really done deep personal research into the pinball meditation scene. But <laughs> similarly, there are people who say, well, okay, you know, here's how we're going to transform consciousness. We're all going to um, uh, uh, have a big demonstration. Well, that is a step, that is useful. Using skillful means to understand the actual mechanics of politics is not really that hard. And just as the anti-frackers figured out that all it required them to do was basically go to every place the governor was going to show up until it got to the point where he used to joke that when he showed up at a place with some of his kids and there was nobody there, they thought they were at the wrong place. Uh, and uh, uh, to his credit, um, and he's my client, uh, to his credit, he decided to do the right thing, and uh, I've defended the ban in court successfully. And you can get it done. But that was done because people weren't just thoughtless about it, and people weren't just uh, trying to uh, do it by doing things that made them feel good, but really were not engaging in confronting uh, people who they disagreed with. So it's very important to understand this, and I leave this as a sort of a challenge to my colleagues here. 
it has been a puzzlement to me as we've gone through this process that I found much more resistance in the Buddhist community in some respects to engaging in the confrontation of Satyagraha because that's really what it is um, than in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So you find a lot of priest ministers and rabbis who are willing to march and willing to go up and confront people who are doing the wrong thing. And there's a lot of more resistance than I really expected in, um, among some people who are Dharma students who see things as, um, uh, see, see confrontation as somehow inconsistent with uh, being a Buddhist. So I would urge you that uh, Gandhi described his approach to this as follows, nonviolence in its dynamic condition means conscious suffering. It does not mean meek submission to the will of the evildoer. Well, Gandhi's talking about evildoers. So it, <laughs> the key here is, and uh, he also referred to Satyagraha as the moral equivalent of war. So the, the challenge here is how do you do this in a way that is skillful, and consistent with your level one and level two practices. And my approach to this has been to work very, very hard to maintain a distinction between an opponent and an enemy. I am not timid in my politics. I, my office is frequently doing things that no other attorney general in the country or anybody else will do, and that's what, the way we like to do it. We like trying things that no one's ever tried before. We like speaking out against injustice that no one has challenged before. But to do so effectively, we work very hard to make it clear, and, to, and people in my office, I think, have now embraced this view. Uh, it's okay to have an opponent. You don't need to make them into an enemy. Very important distinction. And the best example I can give of, of the success of this particular approach is that um, when I was in the state senate, I carried every gun control bill in history. I was uh, the NRA uh, website at one point had my name with a sniper scope that would go up and down over my name so you could blow my name up. And, uh, but we maintain a, a line of communication. When I took when I, my last term in the state senate, I took over the committee that handles criminal justice reform issues, and, um, which is how we got to repeal the Rockefeller drug laws after transformational activists for 30 years have been changing people's consciousness about those drug laws. By the time I got to the point of the transactional work of passing repeal, the newspapers of New York State had appended the word draconian to the front of Rockefeller drug. All you'd ever read about are the draconian Rockefeller drug laws. People didn't even know what they were, but they knew they were draconian. So that was very effective transformational work that enabled me to do the transaction work. But the NRA folks decided they would do a mini version of, oh, well, Bonham is going to take all your guns away about me taking over this committee. And so they were sending out these things saying, warning, warning, anti-gunner takes over a key committee. And I said, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to let them get away with this. So I had some of my colleagues in rural areas. I said, get, get together every gun club. Get together every conservation group. I'm coming out. I'm coming out. I'm going to go target shooting with these guys. I'm going to talk to them. And no one had ever done that before. And they would explain to me why they thought our effort to ban 50 caliber sniper rifles, which are, the shells are like this, is what they use to shoot someone like a mile away in military conflict. And they thought that that ban, or they were telling each other, that that ban would prevent them from shoot using 50 caliber muzzle loaders, which there are a lot of people who, on a Sunday in the winter in upstate New York like to dress up like frontiersmen and take this thing which is black powder and a big glob of lead like Davy Crockett, right, and go out and try and hit a deer. Okay, so um, 
I represented a district in the west side of Manhattan in Washington Heights, uh, home to these two. And uh, I explained to them that I didn't have a problem if they wanted to do that. You know, and people in my district probably didn't, you know, I mean, maybe people didn't think you should be shooting deer, but certainly the idea that we would ban a muzzleloader, as far as I was aware, there had been no crime committed in the state of New York with a muzzleloader in many decades, wasn't really something that was on our minds. But that they should not then be able to tell me that we couldn't do anything about the cars full of trucks with their trunks full of guns coming up the iron pipeline that we knew were coming into New York City every day. Um, and we developed this line of communication as a result of which, after I became attorney general, um, New York had a law that you, in a gun show in New York, you were supposed to always get a background check. We found that many people were disregarding this law. But folks who would bring guns in and sell them to someone we sent undercover operatives in to tell them stories that made it clear this person couldn't pass a background check. You know, it's like, one of our guys said, uh, I need a gun because the cops took all my guns because my wife got an order of protection against me and I'm really mad at her and they sold him a gun. So, so we arrested the sellers, but then we realized that the people who really had control over the situation were the gun show operators who controlled the premises. And under New York law, smart legislative strategists that the, uh, the gun groups are, uh, the gun show operators had virtually no liability. So we entered into settlement agreements with the gun show operators for the six shows where we, we found people not doing background checks that required them to use the system my office developed uh, where we tag every gun going in. If I bring 20 guns in, it has, the tag has my name and the serial number of the gun on it, seal the perimeter, they hire off-duty cops, and it's a set of model AG procedures they signed onto, agreed to abide by, and my staff has access to all the gun shows in the state of New York. And after the six shows where we had busted someone, because of my refusal to let these people end the dialogue with me, one after another, every other gun show in the state voluntarily signed up and submitted to the jurisdiction. We're the only state in the country where you cannot get out of a gun show without a background check. And that was done because... And it, got to, and it got to the point where, uh, you know, my relationship with these guys got so... I was a very exotic commodity at a gun show, needless to say. So I was... And you go to... I commend every well-intentioned liberal to go to gun shows because there are 95% of the people there are totally normal people you see walking around in Syracuse or Rochester or Elmira or any other... Or, you know, Queens. Uh, there are, you know, a few extreme... You know, these old guys in original Civil War uniforms who salute you when you come in and uh, guys who dress up like Yosemite Sam with leather chaps and stuff. But, you know, we, on our side, uh, we, have, we have our share of characters as well. Um, but uh, I, de I developed an understanding for the community that is created by these folks who go to gun shows. They see the same people over and over again. People are selling holsters and other versions selling, um, you know, Revolutionary War uh, memorabilia and stuff. And... Um, they, uh, uh, they, I developed a relationship with a bunch of these people and came to understand that working with them, I started to get all sorts of good tips and information. When, when guys from the NRA call you and say, hey, there's this group, Second Amendment Revolution, that's about to have a demonstration, and these guys should better watch it, that's a good tip to get, right? That's a, these guys must have serious issues if they're, they're getting a dime dropped on them by the NRA. So the, the point is, there's no question that they view me as an opponent on the issues. They've never tried to change my mind on the issues, but I didn't allow them to become my enemy. And so, uh, working on your personal, 
practice is a good thing, working on your own, and, and being conscious of, first step obviously is just to be aware of how you're treating the people around you for a level two practice, and then making yourself aware and taking the time to take responsibility for your ownership, which you have as, uh, as an American, and in many, most parts of the world people have some form or other of ability to participate in changing the laws that the people we elect to represent us, either we vote or we don't vote, but we're the ones in control of that process, and act on our behalf. And um, we started experimenting with this, and there has been a lot of blossoming of this sort of approach. And I think that if you will notice in, for example, the fight for 15, the fight to raise the minimum wage in New York State to $15 an hour, <laughs> there was a lot of, there were a lot of, there's a lot of meditation and prayer that was involved in that movement. Um, I know one person here who is dragged in, out of, uh, in front of the door of the leader of the state senate when he was sitting doing satyagraha in the posture and the state police thought he should not be doing it right there. Um, but uh, the complexities of our world are such that we really have an obligation to ourselves and we have an obligation to generations to come to get a grip on things, right? We can't have a society in which inequality is allowed to get worse every year. We can't, believe me, I've done, been involved in investigations of the fossil fuel industry and I've learned a lot of science I kind of wish I didn't know, but we just don't have that much more time until we've screwed the planet up beyond the point of repair. So every one of us has the power to affect that. Every one of us and every day, if you make the time to sit, make the time to think about something you can do and the smallest things have an effect. We had this campaign um, when we were organizing fast food workers that we had a very simple request. You could go on a website, and if there was a particular franchise that was firing workers trying to organize, it could tell you you were in their neighborhood. And they just said, please go in and tell the manager, I'm in this neighborhood, and we wish you'd stop doing that. And it was an incredibly powerful thing to do. A lot, and some people had a hard time even bringing themselves to do that, which then I think calls for a little bit of self-awareness, and that's where having a community comes in because whether you're working on level one, level two, or level three is, a lot of old yogis say company is more important than willpower. And however your good intentions are, if you're surrounded by people who are not supportive of transforming yourself and transforming the world, it's going to be very hard to engage in those practices and to sustain them. So um, I'm not sure how much traction we're really getting in terms of the work in the vast and diverse and growing you know, growing Dharma community. It seems like business is booming for you guys, right? It's like, <laughs> uh, um, but I do believe that in, um, in terms of, I can speak in terms of politics, I think an awareness that politics, uh, 10 years ago when I would talk about politics being about changing, transforming consciousness, I get a lot more puzzled stares than I get today. Today, this is not, I don't think, that controversial. And the, some of the examples I've given make sense to people. And people understand that. And, and people who actually do political work understand that finding the right messaging, finding the right approach, understanding the core sense of self or your relation to society or your relation to power or your relationship to a different group of people, how shifting perspective on that is really the key to any long-term transformational change. And the, um, you know, let me I'll just close it out and then here, we'd love to open yeah. it up and then we'll, well hear what this no, no, no. I, but these, you can say whatever you want. This is because I, I want to answer your question about the, those poor, forlorn yogi populations. But go ahead, finish. 
Okay, I'm not sh I'm, I'm not sure what uh, the poor forlorn yogi populations are, but I <laughs> certainly hope that we are helping them as well as every other <laughs> poor forlorn population. Um, uh, in it is a particularly important thing. Tomorrow night, I'm doing. I've been doing a lot of work in the faith communities, uh, quite candidly, to offer support for the almost one million Muslims in New York who feel pretty beleaguered right now. And my synagogue, we had them in for services on a Friday night. And so tomorrow night, we're having a forum in Westchester that is being hosted by the Mormons, and it includes Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims. We don't have any Buddhists coming tomorrow night. So if there are any Buddhists in Westchester that any of you know about, they're very welcome to this forum in New Rochelle. And I realize that our, our outreach efforts may not have been quite what they would, would be, but it's, it's not something that sort of pops up on the list when you go to a faith coalition meeting. And we deal with, I deal with ministers, priests, and rabbis all the time uh, in my work to try and help understand problems in communities and solve problems in communities. And... Um, we don't see a lot of Dharma teachers. So, what's up? That's what I meant by the poor, forlorn yogi communities. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think there are a couple of things, and I was really fascinated by the last point you were making, because I think that's the alchemy. It's, it's the same process as thinking, oh, meditation would be really good for me, and just not doing it. You know, it's having an abstract um, value, it's holding something as an ideal. Uh, telling all your friends they need to do it, um, maybe, you know, but it's that movement from being on the sidelines to being in the center of change or possibility, that's that's the magic and that's the hardest thing. And so I think it, it in some ways it is a kind of poor forlorn yogi community because, uh, first of all, I think there's a tremendous cynicism. Um, I, you know, I'm sure Ethan could speak to this as well. I was teaching somewhere once, and somebody uh, said to me, you know how the Buddha said politics is dirty? And I said, I don't, I'm not any great scholar, but I don't recall like, him ever saying that. But, and I, I was just like stunned, because I think it's, it's um, if anybody had said to this person, uh, do you believe in the interconnectedness of all beings? I think they would have actually sincerely said yes. And uh, the fact that their life might have an impact, were they to engage, their life could have an impact on that fast food worker's life, you know, who's struggling the $7.25 minimum wage. That's not happening, that next step. Uh, you know, so something's being held as a beautiful idea. Like, of course we're all connected, we're all... However you say it, we're part of a divine family. We're all, our lives all have something to do with one another, but um, I don't need to vote, you know, because voting only, someone said this to me, voting only makes a difference on the margins. And I said, what about the people who live on the margins? You know. Martin Luther King said, uh, uh, the law can't make a man love me, but if it can stop a man from lynching me, that's pretty important. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, that, that is its own challenge, and I think we're... we're we need to face that challenge. And um, I did a program, it was supposed to be on mindfulness in um, D.C. with Congressman Tim Ryan. And apparently all I kept doing was turning to the audience and saying, you have to vote. You have to vote. And Tim looked at me and he said, are you running for office? <laughs> and I said, well, no, but you are, actually. Uh, you know, and so maybe we're at a place where 
Um, I don't know. Maybe part of it is that we don't understand the connection between action and consequences. First, I was going to say maybe we're at a place where maybe the consequences of disengaging are going to be so evident and so extreme and so scary uh, that people will actually move, but I'm not totally sure that's true. I'm, I'm finding just anecdotally there are people this year who I've been able to get off their butts to do anything for decades who are saying, like, hey, wait a minute, okay. what happened here? I wasn't paying attention, but where did American fascism come from? You know, it's like, uh, you know, how did we end up? How did we end up with five percent of the world's population and twenty-five percent of the world's prisoners? Whoa! When did this happen? Well, it happened because you allowed people to get into office and to keep getting reelected, who kept voting to send more and more poor people of color to prison because their political consultants all told them no one ever lost a race by being too tough on crime. So, it's I don't find the connections that hard to make, but I do think I'm just curious and. We'll open this up. You think, is this year shaking things up enough that uh, you think that there is room for some movement here? <laughs> well, just, just to speak to the initial uh, challenge, I agree with uh, everything Sharon said. I think there's a couple other in terms of why, I can only speak personally to my interests in terms of why it's harder to get a Buddhist to a faith-based rally, which is that, you know, I think my tradition and the way a lot of, I think, Buddhism it doesn't quite map on to some of the other faith. I, I mean, when somebody says a faith-based uh, tradition, I say that's not, Buddhism is not a faith-based tradition. So it's, it's, and I think on the level one practice, a lot of the really fascinating conversations that are going on right now are actually between psychologists, evolutionary biologists, um, uh, uh, neuroscientists. I mean, that, that, the conversation that we witnessed between your friend Dr. Richie Davidson and Mingyur Rinpoche, um, it didn't feel like a faith-based. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it felt like tools for how to understand the mind and die well <laughs> every moment of your life, which yeah. feels very secular and psychological to me. So I think that's, on the level one level, Buddhism has really, I think, come into the uh, Western world in a more psychological and scientific sense. And so I think that's that integration between more Western spiritual communities and Buddhism has to be kind of introduced because a lot of Buddhists are coming from those traditions and saying, that was my parents' tradition, I don't want that. Um, And the other thing I think about um, that's, I think, more relevant to this point is that Buddhism is very new to the the West. And I, I find that a lot of my mentors and teachers, because they're kind of the first generation, are actually quite humble about not appropriating um, the Eastern culture that they've inherited these teachings on the nature of mind and sangha and so forth um, in, in a really good way. So the idea of some people being very vocal about saying like, okay, you know what? Buddhism didn't develop in a democratic society but now I hold this lineage and I'm going to say Buddhism's application in democratic society has to be incredibly social and collective. I think a lot of the people who hold the Buddhist communities in the West have been hesitant in a good way, in a humble way, to say, no, 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 this has to be different because we've never had a political arrangement like democracy where Buddhism has evolved. So that being said, I can I can see why you're super frustrated about this because no, I mean, um, you know just enjoying the, actually it's really I mean, interesting 
It's, in, it's just interesting because I see uh, 10 years ago when we were starting this conversation, my experience was really more that the American progressive political tradition, because we were children of the Enlightenment, was militantly anti-clerical. And anything that smacked of spirituality or religion was sort of viewed with suspicion by progressives. I mean, and you know, the founders were mostly deists, and you know, didn't, or didn't really believe you know God was that relevant to life. And and there was an effort to get away from the superstition and the hierarchy of the church that really gave birth to the Enlightenment, and it was very much on the minds of the founders. And so our tradition. Um, and moving up through the tradition of community organizers, the Alinsky School and everything, it really was not something where uh, it felt like if I was going to do progressive politics, I was not going to be in a room where I could talk about meditation. And if I was going to be in a room where I could talk about meditation, uh, I wasn't going to be able to get anyone to talk about social activism. And I feel like at least on the political front, that, that has softened a lot. I think there are more people, partly because you know we're all getting old and burning out, and more people are realizing they have to take care of themselves. But it's, it's, I do see more opening in for the, the conversation, at least among some parts of the American political activist world. Um, and maybe there will be a countervailing evolution that comes, uh, uh, that comes in the new generation of teachers that you guys are nurturing right now. But you have to start talking about it. Well, we want to go to questions, but I just want to go back to the Thich Nhat Hanh exhibit hanging around us and just the, the, the phrase that he gifted us, which was engaged Buddhism. So in his lineage, he took a lot of heat for trying to bring those two together, progressive politics and, and sitting. So we're going to open to questions. We have one right here. Thanks. <clears throat> Hi, Sharon, Ethan, and um, nice to meet you, um, Attorney General Shannon. W- one of the questions that I had as um, a practitioner, but also as someone who's been an activist and comes from an activist family in Massachusetts, um, the Peace Corps, you know, state senator, uh, Democrat, you know, fought for employee ownership, a lot of things that are fundamentally, um, you know, the right things to do. Um, As a journalist, I haven't been able to be as active in my activism as my family has been, but As a practitioner, one of the things that I keep seeing around me is that the self-compassion is lacking here in the Western world. And I always feel like that is such a big block and feeds into the uh, fear and the, what did you call it? The the separate separate selfish and scared. And and away from the connected, compassionate, and courageous. And that people get so stuck there that I feel as though once you've been able to be liberated from that, it is so much easier to step in with true strength and not just with sort of a bravery that's more fleeting or with an anger that can be more pointed to a one political issue. And that, of course, is, you know, you're countering Madison Avenue, you're countering, you know, Wall Street, whatever it is about uh, this idea that's fueling separation in order to generate revenue in the United States, particularly in the Western world. So I guess I just would like to start with that because as Sharon knows, meta in theory anyway, and Ethan too, of course, um, starts with that fundamentally. It's not that you can't do one without the other or you can't do them simultaneously. You know, um, may all beings be happy, may my enemy be happy, may I be happy. 
Um, but I really feel like there's so much suffering and lack of self-compassion that in a way that would be the opening for people to begin to see a broader world. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to, to frame it. And, um, and it is not an accident. I mean, there are people who actively have an interest in promoting this sense uh, of lack of self-compassion or that, you know, that there's, there is nothing more painful you can do to yourself than really spend a lot of time engaging in practices that convince yourself more and more every day that human nature is to be separate, selfish, and scared. That's just not a recipe for a happy life. Um, and so recognizing that this is, in fact, there are folks at work trying to sell that proposition every day um, is important. Because it's important to understand that while I very much resist letting people become my enemies, I do recognize that we have opponents. We do have people who don't want us to go forward. And it's very evident, and probably more so, and I guess people have mixed views, are, are we better off having all of this uh, xenophobic, racist bile out in the open or not? Um, it bothers a lot of people, but the fact of the matter is, uh, in the long run, I think anything's out in the open probably is a good thing, because it forces conversations, uncomfortable conversations to be had that maybe people would rather not have. And... Um, and it's very important to connect up the three levels. That the, the notion that you can transform yourself, I mean, the portion of me that is Eric is like this small. The portion of me that is absorbed from my culture, my society, my family, my city, the media, everything else that is just crammed into my brain every day, that's, you know, the idea that I can transform myself without transforming the world. And Ken Wilber, who wrote about this uh, years ago, uh, that had this diatribe about, well, so, oh, so what, what does it mean to be a well-adjusted Nazi, right? What would that mean, to be a well-adjusted person living in Nazi Germany, uh, uh, it, you know, at, at peace with your society, fitting in well, getting along? So we really have to uh, open our minds to this broader conversation, but I think that self-compassion is an absolutely critical component that, that runs through all three levels of practice, and we have to maintain that, that awareness. And just the, the word metta is a few, met, Eric, being one, and, and I don't know your name. Yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> uh, used metta is M-E-T-T-A. It means loving kindness. Um, so that's been the reference. And I do, I think, I think um, you're so correct on so many different levels and that uh, having a true love for oneself is not the same as narcissism or self-preoccupation. It is seeing one's place in this larger sense of belonging and connection, and uh, it's seeing the force of kindness so that it's not seen as a weakness or something very meek, and it is a revolutionary act. Uh, you know, speaking to people, I mean, you could just see them, like with the striking fast food workers, rise up with their own families, didn't want them to protest, you know, because they might lose the little that they had, you know, but that was everything, and they might lose it all. And what is it inside that says, I'm worth something? I'm worth more than people are are saying I'm worth. And then, uh, you know, that's from the external measures and then the internal measures where we're, uh, we may not really believe we are capable of much at all and we don't deserve much happiness and all of that. And uh, it just piles on until our lives are very contracted and we are very separate, selfish and scared. Um, you know, so I think despite, you know, when I first began teaching loving kindness, um, in this country, and uh, when people first started talking about it, which was the same time, and uh, <laughs> um, 
coincidentally. And, uh, you know, there is so much energy around, oh, that's just self-indulgence or that's just like racing after a good feeling. But I think when we really look at it as, as, as radical as you were saying. Hi. Um, I actually have a comment that I want to make to Eric. Um, I think it's important to expand your view of what action and activism is. Um, and I'm just going to share a personal story. Um, I am a principal of a high school in the South Bronx. I have never been to a rally in my life. Um, but I really am doing a lot of work around transformational activism. Um, I don't suspend students at my school. We employ restorative practices. Um, and historically, I've been a principal for five years. In the five years that I've done this work, I've had a lot of issues with school safety agents in my building. Um, we're a scan school. My students have to go through metal detectors. Um, there's a lot of police activity around my building. And I was getting a lot of pushback from school safety agents about I wasn't doing anything to address issues. We were just sitting around and talking. Um, and we were having a lot of conflict. And so what I decided is I asked my students if they would be willing to train school safety agents in restorative practices. And they did it. We did it in the spring. Um, it took 12 hours, which was not very long. We did four sessions of three hours. And it has profoundly changed the way that school safety agents treat my kids. And it's, it's went over so well that I'm now in conversation with NYPD to do some of this work with school safety agents, or not school safety agents, actual police officers. And why I'm sharing this is I'm not unique in this work. There's a, a lot of us. There's a whole movement. And, I, and why I'm sharing it is I think it's, important to acknowledge that there can be a lot of work going on. Even if you don't see Buddhists on the front line at rallies, there's other work going on. So I just wanted to share that. I think that's important because I don't want us to go down that path of the poor forlorn yogis. I'm, I'm a yogi and a Buddhist, and I'm neither poor nor forlorn. So, <laughs> so I think it's my important. <laughs> No, that was, you, had, you might have been looking at me. It's hard to say in the dark. No, no that was no. my phrase. No, no, thank you. And it's a very important point to clarify. Level three, I mean, political work, uh, the, the, politics just means, the, the Greek just means the practice of the, the collective decision-making, how we are doing things. So electoral politics is an aspect of political work. But there's lots of other examples of level three practices. And... It, it, you're right. There's, there, it's, it's, uh, I happen to be do uh, political work uh, and be engaged in that uh, part, that aspect of things more than most people. But um, uh, we have had similar experiences, and we had school districts in some parts of the state where some outrageous portion of the children of color were always in disciplinary proceedings, and we had to renegotiate with the school board and brought in people to help do trainings and things like that. But it's uh, uh, however, you when you participate in something that is collective, it may be uh, a block association or it may be a presidential election or it may be just transforming a particular school. That is, that, that's all part of a level three practice. Uh, thank you all so much for coming out and talking to us on this topic. I signed up immediately when I saw the announcement. And thanks to the principal, I want to find out the name of your school because my son's a teacher. Um, 
I follow the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. So, of course, in the very beginning, when he was following engaged Buddhism, one of the main things he was doing was, was founding schools in, in the little villages so that the kids could be educated. So he found a way to be engaged uh, that didn't involve creating an opponent. Or there were, God knows there were opponents there. So what I find in my own sangha, Rock Blossom, in, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, is the, the hesitancy to be involved. Uh, boy, did I try hard to get people involved. Uh, um, has to do with this Buddhist ideal of, of seeing the interdependence and the good in everyone and the need for some kinds of involvement to be able to have a bad guy and a good guy. So I'd be very interested in your comments about that, that dilemma. Thank you. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, everyone loves this, um, uh, you know, the Reverend Barber from North Carolina who has Moral Mondays and who got up at the Democratic National Convention say some things aren't a matter of left and right, they're a matter of right and wrong, and everyone's cheering. Uh, so again, you come back to something that in some traditions, uh, you know, it, it is possible for someone to be an opponent and just to be on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of an issue, um, but not allow them to become your enemy. I come back to that very critical distinction, and it is a very challenging distinction. And uh, holding with compassion some of the high-profile fraud defendants I deal with, just to throw something out there. It's, you know, it's, it's a challenge, right? This is, is it, there are people who someone was here was who, there was a landlord who was particularly abusive of tenants, and someone just thanked me for getting, uh, indicting him, uh, and there are just some folks who are doing things that uh, Bob Thurman talks about stopping them from hurting themselves as being acts of fierce compassion. It's almost sort of, you're not hating them. It's like a child that's going to harm themselves. You have to intervene. And it can seem, you know, to be fierce, but it really, in fact, is an act of compassion because, uh, look, there are people who fought hard against women's equality, fought hard against ending slavery, They've, you know, there, there's an amazing piece that was written uh, looking at the fossil fuel industry, which I've been deeply engaged in in the last year or so particularly, um, and saying the only time we ask people to give up this much property and value of wealth in pursuit of a higher ideal was when we asked slave owners to give up slaves. The only, it's the only comparable thing in the history uh, of the United States. But, you know, we are asking for change. We are asking for change, and there's some people who come to it with understanding, and some people will come to it more grudgingly. But uh, the numbers that I read to you about the transformation of consciousness over years, transformational politics does not take place in one election cycle. It requires a commitment to changing people's core understanding of issues, and my greatest heroes really are people who work to build movements then never live to see the end of. Right, so a particular role model for me is a lawyer named Charles Hamilton Houston who um, started the American Civil Rights Movement. It did not just happen. He wrote a memo to the NAACP and he was a very sophisticated African-American attorney. Um, said, here's how we overturn Plessy v. Ferguson, which is the case that made segregation legal. Here's, here's the strategy. It's going to take decades. Public education, legal cases we can bring to chip away at it and change the conversation about how this happens. And he devoted his entire life to it. And he never lived to see Plessy overturned in Brown v. Board of Education. But his law student, Thurgood Marshall, argued the case. And he never lived to see the Civil Rights Act of 1964 
the important thing I also to understand about transformational movements in American history is elected officials never start them. Elected officials show up later. Right? You can't think of one of these movements that was started by an elected official. You know, these are started by activists because you have to be willing to take positions that are challenging, that make people uncomfortable. Doesn't mean you're hating them. Doesn't mean you don't try to hold them with compassion. But it is a path, as Gandhi said, it is not meek uh, obedience to the will of the evildoers. So it, it, this, is, this is not a simple process, but I mean, you read uh, reading Buddhist texts about the depth of inquiry into the nature of the processes of the mind. It, you know, it, I think we're capable of figuring out how to get our prison population in line with the rest of the world, right? I think we're capable of doing that if we can understand how you transform neural pathways. So it's just a matter of making a commitment to work for something that may take some time and challenging yourself and challenging others. And it, history tells the story. I mean, we, we have gone, if we truly incline towards being separate, selfish, and scared, we'd all still be slaves and the god kings would have all the gold, right? That's not the history of mankind. We evolved towards greater equality and greater democracy and greater inclusiveness. And America explicits it so, more so than any other government that was ever... Our government was set up to be, trans, to be transformed. Our constitution was set up to be amended. So it really is a, a, a tremendous vehicle for this conversation that we have here in this country, and it's a good time to start it. So now I, I see out of your question also... I see a, a, a whole career path for us, like a whole series of workshops on emptiness, what it means and what it doesn't. Because that, I think, is, yeah. is the issue. It's falling down some sense of, of what emptiness might mean, which, uh, I mean, there's nowhere in Buddhism that moral relativism exists, you know? That killing is the same as not killing or whatever. Uh, but we take it to be such when we... So, yeah, that was exciting. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, I think we are out of time at yeah. this point, but I want to just ask if there is anything, any parting words, anything that you want to tell us. Um, <laughs> vote, vote, vote. <laughs> sit, sit, sit. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> I, and, is that on camera? And, and we're going we're gonna to stay around for a little while, so even though they're breaking up the formal part of this and people have things to do and places to go. Uh, um. There are a lot of people who have engaged in this conversation. There's a lot of things you can read about it. There's a lot of thoughtful discussion going on um, in Sharon and uh, Insight Meditation. The conversation takes place very much so. The community in Washington, D.C. talks about it. It's, uh, Tara and her groups talk about it a lot. Ethan, the Interdependence Project, is very explicitly set up to integrate these different levels of practice. So um, join in the conversation. We all have a lot to learn from each other. And... Uh, and never forget, the company is more important than willpower. Thank you. Yeah, okay, a round of applause. <laughs>